Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. And this week's episode is going to be a particularly fun one because I am going to be joined for this first segment, at least, with one of the most charming, ebullient wine experts that I know. In fact, I don't know that many wine experts, but Michael Green, you set the bar high. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you, Pauline. So it must be an interesting time to be a wine expert because God knows we're all drinking like fish right now. And yet to visit vineyards and wineries there are many different types of protocols and situations that we all have to keep front of mind that, that we didn't in the past, right? I mean, are you seeing that a lot of people are making winery visits in the United States this year? Well, let me back up for a moment. Sure. I mean, first off, to something that you said, wine consumption during the time of the heat of COVID went up something like 200%. And while many of the restaurants were not beneficiaries of these sales because of the shutdown for many of them or lockdown, retail sales increased dramatically. You know, it was very difficult for many of the wineries, especially many of the wineries in California, specifically that are direct to consumer where their business really is not that they're distributed in wine shops so basically you go to the winery you have a great time you taste through some of their wines you buy their wines you join their wine clubs but i have to tell you having just been in california last week certain wine regions specifically wine country uh, sonoma and napa they are booming and hotel rates are egregious. They're very expensive. (laughs) You know, that's fascinating because I had thought, I now see wrongly, that California, which has suffered with so many wildfires, that people might be nervous about, about going there right now, but I guess not. Yeah, I think that um, if all goes according to plan, not only in California, but we're really going to see the wine world open up uh, as it relates to winery tourism. And I'm seeing that a lot more. I'm in the process of planning a four-day trip for Mm -hmm. uh, some folks out to Napa uh, and Sonoma. But um, it's an exciting time. I think a few things your listeners need to know if they're taking a trip to any wine country region is that there are there are protocols in place the protocols will vary depending on the state as well as depending on the winery so the first thing is that with most wineries now you just can't just show up and say hey here i am (laughs) let me taste your wines right do you do need an appointment And for many of these wineries, they are capping the number of attendees in certain spaces to a certain number. Huh. That must be difficult for folks because I know I I remember when when I went to the Napa Valley and Sonoma, you, you kind of tootle around and you never know how long it's going to take you at each winery. 
And your, I, I found that I could never hit more than three in a day because I, I would just be <laughs> done after three. <laughs> uh, so making advanced reservations, I would think, would take some self-knowledge and also some real planning skills. Some planning skills, but here's the benefit. While there might be certain wineries that you just show up, you're most probably going to be in a very small, with a small group of people at a tasting room just getting tastes. But if your listeners and people who are really interested in a winery experience, if you go on these winery websites, you will see some extraordinary experiences that many of these wineries are offering, including blend your own wine seminars, wow. to special lunches in the caves, becoming a winemaker for a day. You know, you mentioned a few minutes earlier, you don't want to hit more than three wineries a day. I tell people, sure. actually, when I'm at wine country, I would rather have a more immersive experience and frankly, hit two wineries in a day and then huh. maybe go up to Calistoga and have a mud bath or sure. a leisurely lunch somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were saying egregious prices. Uh, are those in effect for these experiences too? Or are you mostly no. talking about hotel stays? I'm talking about the hotels. And uh, So how so, much are you seeing? Uh, I'm t- I'm, I'm, um, I'll tell you. If you are in the heart of wine country like uh, Santa Lina, um, you are looking at between seven hundred and nine hundred dollars a night for most quality hotels. Now these wow. are really three to five star hotels. Sure. Now, if you're looking for value, I would recommend in wine country to go to downtown Napa, which now has become very vibrant, not wow. only with winery tasting rooms, but breweries and a lot of good restaurants. And I'm going to mention two hotels, and I want to make it clear that I don't work for these hotels. I just happen to like them very much. (laughs) One is called the Andaz, which I believe is a Hilton That's a chain. That's a chain. Uh But uh, sort of has a boutique feel. And then an independent hotel called the Archer. The Archer. Interesting. Okay. I think that's a chain too, actually. But that might keep the prices lower and allow people to use points. Which that's is a good point. Very helpful. That's yeah. a really good point. And also you're spending less money because you're in Napa Valley, downtown Napa. And basically, though, it's just a straight shoot off uh, up uh, t- uh, Route 29 or up the Silverado Trail. And within 20 minutes, you're in the heart of wine country. So you have to wear a mask. In California, do you also have to prove you're vaccinated? No. No. To the best of my knowledge, no. I was on the phone with a a winery um, that I really adore in wine country, and they are not asking for proof of vaccination. Pauline, you and I know, being New Yorkers, heck, I went to my first Broadway show. You had to wear a mask throughout the whole show and then show your proof of vaccination. But it must have felt so good to be in the audience. I'm thinking, I haven't done it yet, but I can't wait. Oh, Pauline, we need to get a date on the books for that. I got to <laughs> tell you something. I was I was sobbing throughout the oh. whole show with my mask on. And frankly, <laughs> you know, it's interesting for so many of us. What so many of us miss during this time of COVID is travel. And this yeah. is your world. And yeah. travel improves the mind <laughs> and travel lets us explore and lets us experience. And, and the work that I do is really having people experience travel 
through food and drink. Sure, sure. And that's a, that's an excellent way to do it. So let's talk about some of the other parts of the United States where you can go and taste wines. Many years ago, I went to the Willamette Valley uh, in Oregon, which is known uh, especially for its Pinot Noir. And I went from winery to winery, tasting Pinot Noir after Pinot Noir and, and deciding definitively that I don't like Pinot Noir. But uh, other than that, it was a delightful day. It's a beautiful area of the country. Do you think that prices are going to be any better in the Willamette Valley than they were in Napa? That's a great question. Uh, I can't comment on the hotels, but a lot of these wineries have now begun to charge for tastings. And if you're just going there to taste through a small flight of wines, expect the tasting experience to be anywhere between free and $25 to $50. And then if you want to taste reserve wines or wines with age, the prices could be more. Going back to uh, California for a moment, many of these wineries are now charging for tastings. But I want to go back to something you just mentioned about the Willamette Valley and the wonderful Pinot Noirs, as well as the white grape Pinot Gris coming out of that region, every state in the union has at least one licensed commercial winery. And yes, yeah. that includes Alaska and Hawaii. Crazy. But for, for those of your listeners who are on the East Coast, you have the third and fourth largest wine producers, no, the third and fifth, the third largest wine producer in our country is New York. And I'll huh. come and I'll come back to that in a moment. And, the, and then the fifth is Virginia, Virginia. Huh. So the order is California, Washington, New York, Oregon, Virginia, and then believe it or not, Texas, Texas. Wow. What? What Texas? What kind of wine is made down there? Is it worth going to try it? You know, something full disclosure, I have (laughs) had the opportunity to taste through many Texas wines, but I have not been to the Texas wine region Uh, before, uh but it is home to very warm climate grapes. And they're doing a lot of work there with the um, differentiating grape of Spain, the grape that's used to make the fine wines of Rioja and Robeo del Duero. It's a grape called Tempranillo. But I want to come back to New York and and, and Virginia for a moment. So I was out, you know. New York, there are many wine-growing regions, including the Hudson Valley and the Finger Lakes, that if you're going for topography and just pure beauty in New York State, the Finger Lakes is just really, really breathtaking. Mm. And you have a lot of these wineries that are attached to a restaurant that they own. So that's really special. But for quality wines in New York, you're really looking at the North Fork of Long Island. And I was out there about two months ago and uh, went to Shin Estate, which is a uh, certified organic winery. And I believe we paid $25 for the tasting. And it was lovely. And then you could sit outside. And if you want to spend a little bit more money, they would bring you over some cheese. They would bring you over some charcuterie. 
But I will tell you that doing the research is really, really important because you'll not only be a more savvy buyer in terms of making sure that whatever experience you want, you're getting at a competitive price. Sure. You all, you'll also be able to control the experience even more. And the cool thing about Somi's wineries, the smaller ones, is that if you call the number on the website, you'll generally get, if not the owner, if not the winemaker, the director of social events, and huh. they can work with you to craft something really, really special. So this, this leads to the question, how do you know which winery to go to? Uh, how do you do that research? Well, there are several ways. And you can ways. toot your own horn if you want. <laughs> I appreciate that, Pauline. Thank you. God, I wish I was giving you a hug in person. You know, uh, we have to go on another dog walk soon. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. so here, here's how you do it. So part of my business is that people engage me to create and sometimes host these trips. But, you know, one way to start is to go to the Wine Council's website. So the Long Island Wine Council website or the um, Virginia Lake Wine for, Council. Exact, exactly. Or the Virginia Wine Growers Alliance. And they will give you a list of wineries and it's one stop shopping. You can click directly to the website. And you can do your research that way. The other thing you can do is ask people's opinion. Going to, for example, I'm off to Atlantic City for a weekend of pleasure. And I put out a post and a Facebook post that focuses on Atlantic City. Where should I eat? <laughs> many people had opinions. But sure. uh, your, your listeners can always drop me a line at michael at michaelgreen.com if they just want to talk wine or have a oh, quick wine question. You. Great. Are there any awards that when you're looking at these websites that you should be looking out for that that really show a badge of quality? You know, awards can be very challenging and you have to sort of understand what the award is for. So, for example, there is one winery out of Napa Valley that has won the award for the best tasting experience for two years in a row. There's a lot of performance art involved in what they do. But if you are looking for a bit of a showy, over-the-top tasting experience, they have won that award. But for those of your listeners who are really into wines, they can actually see what Robert Parker has said about these wines or if they've won a Grand Spectator Award or the Wine Enthusiast or the wine advocate has given them over 90 points. Uh, But you know something for me, at the end of the day, when I'm at a winery, I want the wines to taste good, but I'm going for really the overall experience that goes beyond just the wine's flavor. Sure, sure. I always find that whatever I'm tasting, it always tastes best best at the second or third winery. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, first, the first one warms me up, but I don't. Uh, I, I never end up buying at the first one. I end up if I end up buying something, I, it's always the second or third. That's and it's funny. In- I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt Go you. Ahead. I want I want to make a plug. There is one winery that I have known for over 40 years, and they have been making wine for over 100 years. Wow. And they were hit really hard by the wildfires Mm. in Napa and by COVID. And as I shared earlier, this is one of the wineries that their business is direct to consumer. You show up there, you like the wine, you buy it. 
Right. And they offer such an amazing tasting experience that I would suggest that if your listeners want to support wineries, that they support wineries that are really direct to consumer. And when you say direct to consumer, what would be the other thing that they would be to basically selling selling to a distributor where you buy the wine through a retail wine shop or on a restaurant wine list? So it's a lot of these smaller wineries that are direct to consumer in, in Napa specifically with uh, with the wildfires and with COVID or in Santa Barbara with the mudslides. They right. really, really need our support. So what is the name of the one that you wanted to recommend? Thank you. It's called Spring Mountain Vineyards, Spring Mountain Vineyards, and they are lovely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this is... Uh, kind of a lowbrow comment, but I remember when there was a toilet paper shortage, that had to do with the fact that suddenly there was so much more consumer demand and no demand for the toilet paper that was always sold, say, to office buildings or to public yes. places. And so it's interesting that in the wine industry, there's also this division of people who work directly with the public and they had trouble getting the word out about their product. And the folks who, who work more with, you know, big box retailers who couldn't probably move it off the shelves fast enough. Exactly. And it's really these smaller producers that got, um, got you know, hit. left behind and really hit. I thought you were going to ask me what wine pairs well with toilet paper. That's where I thought this was going. <laughs> um, but I'm glad it's uh, not. This no. is a family show. Yes, um, I, but, I but, here, even... <laughs> but here's what I, here's what I can tell you. The wines that I enjoy the best have what I have called a sense of somewhere-ness, that you might not have the PhD in wine to understand everything about it, but when you taste this wine, you feel like you're transported. And when you taste this wine, you feel like it's been made in a specific place. And I think, frankly, that to go to that place and to experience the wine, experience the food, wherever you're going, Um, it can really be magical. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, on that note, thank you so much. Uh, For anybody trying to write down what Michael said earlier, you can find him on the web at michaelgreen.com, right? Yes. Thank you, Pauline. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Michael. On your next hike, spare a thought for the trail builders who made it possible. That is the headline uh, for a wonderful article in the Washington Post that my next guest wrote. She is Christine Negroni. She's been on the show before. Hey, Christine, so nice to speak with you again. Hi, it's so nice to be back on your show, Pauline. Thank you for thinking of me, and I'm glad you liked the article. I really did. So what inspired you to write it? Well, you know, I, I, I kind of allude to it in the story that yeah. I was taking this hike, this amazing hike in um, the Eastern Territory of Canada. And the hike led me through these two enormous boulders and I had to squeeze through them. And as I emerged on the other side of the boulders, there was this beautiful expanse of you could see Vermont in the background and the and the mountains and it was so beautiful and I thought who comes up with the idea to do this like how does somebody make nature into 
a wonderland like that into like a a little series of vignettes of, yeah. of scenes. And as luck would have it, the man who designed the, the trail was actually around at the time. And so I got a chance to meet him and ask him all sorts of questions about how trails are designed. And it was like my eyes were opened. I, I had no idea that all the trails I'd hiked and biked and, you know, whatever on, there's actually a great lot of thought that goes into it. It's, they don't just happen. And it was my, finally, I had an opportunity, the post um, asked me to write this piece and I had an opportunity to really explore some of the thinking that goes into it and some of the goals of trail makers, which is what led to the story. Well, it was really quite beautiful, I thought. Uh, I think it might have been the man who designed this trail, and he wants certain experiences for the people who are going to take the trail. And so he will specifically put uh, uh, people in different places so that they might have to stop and go slower because there are rocks places or so that they will see a very special type of fern or plant or other natural attraction that he wants to draw your attention to. And it was it was fascinating to hear how he does that. I thought so too. I really did because, and the way he explained it to me was, this is a, a national park in uh, Mount Meganak, and I know I'm killing the pronunciation. My <laughs> French is non-existent, but it's a it's a magnificent park, and it's known for its sweeping vistas. And what he wanted to do is take a a monumental park and turn it into little pockets of view, little pocket sized views, or the way I the way I said it's kind of like like uh, window shopping in New York, right? Like there's <laughs> these little boutiques. You know, you're in a great city, but you're you're seeing little boutiques. And he said, yes, it's exactly like that. He wanted oh. to make us see little teeny, little pocket-sized views of, an, of, a, of a magnificent place. And I honestly feel like it, he's totally succeeded because that's how I felt long before I understood that was his philosophy. Right. That's how I felt about my walk. Now, it does go beyond philosophy because one of the main points in creating a trail is so that people won't be bushwhacking all over the place and destroying nature, right? So they also have to look at, at other elements. What what are those other elements that they have to look at beyond the human experience? Right. You know, everything I never thought about, like water, you know, mm. like you walk on a trail and you may not notice, but most of the time, if it's a good trail, you're not walking in puddles. And that's not because water's not out there, but it's because they've diverted. They've either put the trail in a way that's outside of the direction of the water, or they've diverted the water. They've dammed, you know, they've made a dam so that it goes under the trail. I mean, there's bridges and there's stone footpaths. And, you know, there's just a lot of different ways that they deal with water and mud. And the reason for that is not just uh, so your feet don't get wet, but so, as you just said, so you don't just go off that trail and try and find a drier area that may take you through some area where there are nesting birds or, you know, little delicate leaflets or, you know, little things growing that they don't want you smashing down. So that was in itself kind of an interesting thing that you're, you're being given this access into a wild area, and yet your very presence in that wild area can harm it if you don't 
you know, be very careful about where you allow people to go. So that, you know, that was part of it. So water is one and uh, understory is another keeping, keeping away from wildlife and, and plants and, you know, wildlife that's skittish and plants that need their heads protected from your boots. Sure. Um, Those were some, you know, and then there also, and I didn't get into it as much in the story, but it was kind of interesting to me that various users of trails will, uh, will I mean, it, they need to take into consideration who is using the trail. So more and more people, because of Corona, are getting out on trails. They're, they're not all robust, you know, hikers. They might be folks in wheelchairs or walkers. They may be birders. I'm a birder who don't, you know, who don't actually, it's not, you're not so much going from A to B. You're just sort of parking yourself on a spot. So these all, pe- these people might all be in somewhat in conflict with what they want from a trail. And then there are people who ride bicycles and then there sure. are people who, um, who are on horseback. So there's, there's all sorts of different people on the trail through hikers versus, you know, the person just out meandering. And how do you make all of these people sort of uh, com- comfortable together on a trail or kind of importantly, keep certain ones off so that others can enjoy like mountain bikers versus uh, bird watchers, then they're, they're sort of incompatible. <laughs> Sounds like a very bad action movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. Versus bird but you know, the funny thing is, Pauline, the more I talk about it, and the more I learned about it, the more complex it became. It's just yeah. like, it's so, it's really a 3D puzzle. And, you know, and, and that became more, even more fascinating when I, when I listened to the various things they take into consideration. Well, it's a huge puzzle. One of the surprising facts in your article is that there are more miles of trails in the United States than there are miles of interstate highways. And yet, the trails are a fairly recent development since the 1960s. Can you talk a little bit about the history of trail building in the country? Well, you know, trails actually started much longer ago than that because they were the original highways of cross sure, America sure, were, sure, sure. were foot trails. Yeah. And in, and before that, I even talking they, recreational yeah, trails. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but the reason I bring it up is because uh, native American trails as well, but the reason I bring it up is some of those trails are in fact, national trails today. There's a whole um, uh, trail system out in the West, and the name of it is going to fly out of my head right now, of course. But it is a national park that is a park that enables you to see all of the indigenous American, not all of them, but many of the indigenous, indigenous American trails. One of them is called the the Trail of Tears uh, trail mm, system. Wow. So you get a chance to actually walk along the trails of the great migration of Native Americans uh, to Oklahoma. So, you know, so that's just one piece of it. But then, as you rightly point out, trails really got a kick in the pants when uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson became president and he made this great speech where he said, uh, I'll probably screw it up exactly, but he says basically the hiker and the biker is the great outdoorsman of today. And we need to provide for them, you know, assuming right. or sort of reminding them that America is made up of great outdoors people and we still are today. So, so yeah, so it really got a kickstart then. National parks, the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Coast Trail, you know, all of these sort of famous trails and many, 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 many more that are yeah. not famous at all. 
Well, and you make the point that trails are not necessarily just on public land. Uh, In the piece, you profile a woman who created trails in her backyard, basically. Tell tell about her. Yeah, I couldn't believe it when I found her. I thought this. I thought she's a whole story in and of herself. She was Deborah Pearson. She was great. She was great. I I talked to her (laughs) for more than an hour. I wished I could have used more of her. But she's a retired school teacher in Atlanta, and she lives by herself in a house in, uh, in I think it's called College Park. And um, her next door neighbor, so she had a big, uh, a wooded backyard, and her next door neighbor, a bunch of them, I guess, have wooded backyards. But the next door neighbor decided to cut down his trees, and that's the first time she ever gave any thought to the fact that I have beautiful trees in my yard, and that's a blessing. I mean, you know, she right. just saw them as trees until that moment when when the next door neighbor cut his down. So she calls an arborist, and because he, the neighbor says to her, they're diseased. So she was concerned. So she called mm. an arborist to come out and take a look, and the arborist said, No, no, no. These trees are a hundred years old. They're two hundred years old. These are perfectly. They're indigenous to, to to this part of Georgia. They're very rare. You know, all these all these. He's giving her a pitch on the trees. And she, she's, she loves it. So she says, well, what should I do? He said, well, if I were you, I'd take some of those logs that your neighbor, you know, felled right onto your property and see if you can get some people and make some walk, walk, walking paths and take, you know, appreciate your, appreciate the the forest you've got in your backyard. So she proceeds to do this over the course of 10 years. The neighborhood kids come in and help her. She's a former school teacher, so this is right up her alley. Sure. The, the kids come in, they make the trail, then they decide a couple of art installations, then those kids grow up and new kids come in. And she's got this whole whimsical garden, and she then she starts learning about what she's got back there and starts labeling the plants and the kinds of bark on the trees. I mean, she's totally into it now. She said it's the best thing that ever happened in her life, having this yeah. having this um having this forest in her yard. And she invites now people to come and walk through her yard and through her trails. I just thought that was so delightful. But she was only one of the people you wouldn't expect to be trail builders. Uh, there are also a core cores of people, uh, of people who are being hired to create and maintain trails. Who are those folks? You know, it's a big mixed bag, Pauline, because there are people who are hired and, and they are young people. And, and, and so let me talk about them just real quickly. Those, yeah. the young people who are in these conservation cores are really like the great, great grandchildren of the civilian conservation corps that came about in the 30s. And they're the ones who, if you go to a state park or whatever, you'll see some, you know, some campground that they built or some, some inn, not an inn, but like a, a lodge, you know, all of these things that have been around for a while, they've been, they were built by the, the conservation progress administration. Exactly. I think they were sibling, uh, sibling groups at the time. So they, so they kind of basically went out of business in around the fifties or the sixties, but when the the states were now sort of left or or the federal government were left with a lot of trails to maintain and no longer a workforce. Uh, These, not private, but these nonprofit organizations came about or state organizations like the California Conservation Corps. And they started doing what the Civilian Conservation Corps was doing back in the 30s. And they hired, you know, they hire young people. One of the sidelines of the Conservation Corps is to try and get people who are not normally park users. So they go huh. into urban communities where maybe, you know, where the people's, a- people's access to the park 
might be uh, more limited than folks who are in rural areas and have parks, trails running through their, their backyards. And they try and get the, and they try and get women. They, they make a big effort to get women involved in it because the, the original conservation corps was only men. And, uh, so they get all these young people who are now finding their, they're learning to be, uh, you know, to do all sorts of skills they wouldn't ordinarily do. They're giving back to their communities in California. The, the recruiting agency says something like hard work, low pay, miserable conditions. That's how they recruit them. So it's going to take a certain person who's going to say, yeah, that's for me. But they were so much fun to talk to these young people. They're in their, you know, and they're in their late twenties and the way they describe, you know, when they first got to the campsite, and I don't know because if I made that they're a... having to live in the yeah. wilderness. They, yeah. they don't have barracks even. They have tents, these young yes. people. And they can't work with anything they can't carry in. Wow. So we're not talking about earth movers here. If they got to move rocks, they're using arms and maybe ah. some sort of manual tool that, you know, that gets them out. So they are hardworking. And then at the end of the day, they're stuck together, you know, their, their coworkers are their companions and they're right. Cause they're deep in the aid. wilderness. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So they're deep in the wilderness. So that's, that's one group. And the other group that I, I highlighted were trail users. Hmm. So I've been on, I've been on thousands of trails in my life. I swear it never occurred to me that I need to go out there and maybe pay, pay it forward and clean up a trail for somebody else. But these people, God bless them, are actually, they've worked on, you know, they've hiked on trails and they now are trail maintainers and they're assigned X number of miles of trail and they go out there and they pick up dead trees and make sure the water's being diverted as it should and everything yeah. else they have to do, re- remove graffiti. And, uh, and that's a whole other group of people. And there are right. tens of thousands of people like that all across America who are and doing so that And so important work. this year in particular, because the trails got used, I think you said three times as much as they usually do. There, there were triple the number of people getting out into nature. And I think probably a lot of those people, once they experience it, they're going to keep doing it, right. which is good news and bad news, as you mm-hmm. say, right? Yeah, yeah. We just have to. I mean, it's it's all good news if we can all just behave ourselves. But if we're not <laughs> in the habit and we don't know, you know, yeah. what is proper trail behavior? And honestly, I'm going to say I probably don't know a lot of things. Didn't know a lot of things before I uh, wrote on the story. I I confess, I have absolutely taken the social trail. That's the trail that's not the official trail. It's the one that goes off on the side. I'll never do it again. But I didn't know. So some of that is simply a matter of getting accustomed to, you know, what's good trail use and what's not. And you really have to kind of pay attention and learn that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's delightful article. Uh, Thank you, Christine, for appearing here on the Frommer Travel Show. Thank you so much, Pauline. Happy trails to you and all of your listeners. I hope we're all out on the trail. Well, I should end with that. Happy trails to all of my listeners and to those who are traveling. May I wish you a hearty Bon voyage. Sour candy on the table. Lazy afternoons in your sweatpants, watching cake.